Good afternoon. So, yes, we will read from the Romans, chapter 8, uh, from the 31 until the end of the chapter. Romans, chapter 8, from 31. What then shall we say in response to the things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will be he not also, along with him, graciously, gives us all things? Who will bring any charge against whose whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus, who died more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God, and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble, or hardship, or persecution, famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword, as it written, For your sake we face days all day long, we are considered as a sheep to be slaughtered. Now in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loves us. For I am convinced that neither death or life, neither angels or demons, neither the present nor the future, not any powers, neither high nor death, nor anything else in all creation, will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Thank you, Vlada. And let's pray for ourselves and also for Jedi as we listen to God's Word taught. Our loving Heavenly Father, we praise you for the words of life that you have given us uh, and we ask you today as as we hear your word being preached and taught that your spirit might powerfully work in our lives please make your word clear to us and please uh, enlighten our own lives before you as we meditate on these wonderful reassuring truths. Please grant your spirit help to Jedi to preach your word clearly and faithfully today. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for the prayer on this. Um, for those of you who do not know me, like uh, Anders said, my name is Jedi. Um, it's great to be here. Um, I see a lot of new people, so I hope I will be loud and clear to you. Um, so, um, <clears throat> I probably shouldn't start my sermon this way, but I, I just went to the toilet and there's a sign there, a very creative sign. It says, please do not flush uh, toilet paper or uh, any, any other thing. And then it goes on to state things like puppies and kittens and hopes and dreams. So, it, it made me think about how important hopes and dreams are for, for us. Uh, we, we hold our hopes and dreams and our plans uh, very, very highly. They are, they are dear to us even. And that sort of connects to, to my, uh, the original introduction that I had planned. I wanted to talk about an air crash. Um, I like watching the show, Air Crash Investigation. Uh, it's on Disney Plus if you'd like to watch it. One of the episodes was about an Air France flight, Flight 447. It disappeared over the Atlantic Ocean in 2009. And only after three years, authorities were able to figure out what had happened to this flight. 
it was a transatlantic commercial flight flying from Brazil to Paris and was carrying 228 people, including uh, the crew. Everything was as usual in the flight. Uh, many people in there were taking this flight every once in a while, even for, for uh, business reasons. Uh, but somewhere midway, the autopilot disconnected and a rapid series of events led to the plane taking a very quick descent from about 11,000 meters straight to the ocean in, in a matter of seconds. 228 people who had plans for the next day in Paris, who had hopes of a new career in, in Europe, everything vanished in a matter of seconds. And a tragedy like this makes you think about how uncertain and fragile life is. But I'm not simply referring to how fragile life is, that it can end any moment. I am referring to the even broader uncertainty about our future. As, as James puts it in the Bible, we do not even know what will happen tomorrow. Our plans are fragile, our life is fragile, our dreams can remain just dreams, and our hopes can be dashed and destroyed. And we cannot state anything about the future with an absolute certainty. So, amidst such uncertainty, I want to raise a question. Uh, again, pardon this very morbid start. It only gets more morbid with the question. Suppose you face your last day today. Would you be certain about being welcomed by Jesus into heaven? I think it is an important question. If we do not know what will happen tomorrow, which is something the Bible tells us, how can we have any confidence at all in answering this question positively? I am certain that I will be welcomed by Jesus into heaven when I die. Do we have any confidence at all uh, in trying to answer that question? Whether it be today or tomorrow or a decade later or half a century later, I believe Christians can confidently state, when I die, I am absolutely certain that Christ will welcome me with open arms into the presence of God to enjoy and glorify Him forever. And it is my aim today to go through Romans 8, 31-39 and show that, first of all, Christians can have this confidence and assurance, but more importantly, I want to show you where we can find that confidence, where that confidence comes from. Uh, like I just observed, I see a lot of new faces, uh, and that, that gives me a practical reason to give a quick recap of uh, what we've seen in Romans so far. But it's also good to have this recap because Paul is finishing his first section uh, from chapter 1 to 8 in these nine verses. This is his uh, sort of a great conclusion of the truths he has argued for so far. So what have we seen in the letter to the Romans up until now? In the initial chapters, chapters 1, 2, and 3, Paul seemed to suggest that God is against all humans. His wrath is revealed against us because we have all sinned and everybody is guilty before God. 
effect. However, as we get into chapters 4 and 5, we read that God has freely justified us through faith in Jesus Christ because of his infinite mercy. And this justification is made possible by the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. We are now made alive in Christ and we are slaves to righteousness, not sin. And in chapter 7, we read that despite all of these truths, despite justification, we continue to struggle with sin. We still suffer and we still die. Mere legalism, do's and don'ts, cannot save us because even if we love God's laws now, we are still flesh and evil is right there with us. What we want to do, we do not do, and what we do not want to do, we continue doing. This, according to Paul, is the normal Christian experience. And we can all agree with it. None of us can say, hey, today has been a great day. I never sinned once. But the Spirit of God now lives in us, and our obligation is not to the flesh, but it is to the Spirit. We are to live life according to the Spirit. He is the one who helps us wage war against sin. He points us to the truth and helps us understand them. As we wait for the redemption of our bodies to be glorified, to be made perfect, the Spirit of God helps us in all of our weakness. He prays for us, He sanctifies us, and gradually but surely He is conforming His people to be more like the Son of God, which is God's will for us. And it is about this will of God that we heard last week from Andres. God chose us, not that we chose Him. He foreknew us, and He made an eternal connection between Himself and His people. These people whom God foreknew, He predestined, and those whom He predestined, He called, and those He called, He justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. This is the will of God for every person he has elected, start to finish. The question of certainty in this matter can be put in this way. Can God change his mind about his elect? Is there anything or anyone that can somehow stop our story between justification and the future glorification? Paul actually makes it clear that it is not possible in his description of the chain of events. We can notice that it's all in past tense. Uh, but here's how we read it. Those whom God foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of the Son. Those whom he predestined, he called. Those who answered the call, he justified. And those who stuck to the program of holy life, he glorified. But that's not what the text says. We can actually shorten it all the way down to those whom God foreknew, he glorified. There are just these chain of events that Paul elaborates. Salvation is not dependent upon us. Every step is accomplished by God. God is the worker of each and every step in that chain of event. It is that work of God so rightfully we read in Psalm 27, The Lord is my light and my salvation. But this truth that we cannot affect our salvation, either positively or negatively, is somehow so difficult for us to accept. 
So I will give you a small story from the Old Testament as an argument for this biblical truth, as, as a picture of what is happening in the background. We will turn to a well-known event in Exodus, the golden calf. Exodus chapter 32, Moses is on the mountain uh, receiving the Ten Commandments and all the other instructions. God is almost done giving these instructions to him. And the people below think Moses has been up there in the mountain for far too long. And so they make for themselves a golden calf and call it their God. And up there in the mountain, God reveals to Moses this is what the people are doing. And in verses 9 to 10, God says to Moses, I've seen this people, the Israelites, and behold, they are a stiff-necked people. Now let me alone that my anger may burn against them, and that I may consume them, and I will make you, Moses, a great nation. Uh, in Deuteronomy, this story is repeated, and uh, there's a little bit of addition here. Uh, a great nation that is stronger and more fruitful and more in number than Israel. And then Moses immediately, in verse 11, he begins his intercession. This is what he says. O Yahweh, why does your anger burn against your people, whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a strong hand? Why should the Egyptians speak, saying, With evil intent he brought them out, to kill them in the mountains, and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger, and relent concerning doing harm to your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants to whom you swore by yourself. And you said to them, I will multiply your seed your seed as the stars of the heavens, and all this land of which I have spoken I will give to your seed, and they shall inherit it forever. And we know the story of the Israelites continues on after that. Because what is what is at stake here? Is it the Israelite people? Is it God's plan of salvation? It's actually God's word which is at stake here. As Moses says, God swore by himself to give the land to Abraham's seed forever. If he fails, if God fails in accomplishing this promise, then God is a liar. And God is not a man that he should lie. And so that is what is at stake. God's, God will fail his word if he fails to save Israel to the end. <clears throat> and in Christ Jesus, that promise of a future land is for us too. And that land is New Jerusalem. This story in Exodus 32 is a beautiful, clear picture of Jesus' intercession for his people. Just as in this story the Israelites did not know what was happening in the conversation between God and Moses, we do not see Jesus sitting there at the right hand of God interceding for all our failures. Every idol we build in our life, be it uh, career or money or education or health or even our own families, Every time that we reject God, every time that we do not love Him enough, every time that we give His place to another, 
And uh, make no mistake, we do this every day. But whenever we do this, Jesus is there at the right hand of God interceding for us. And that's, that's what we read in Romans chapter 8, verse 34. Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. So the question is, is there a sin that is so serious, that sin that can be brought as a charge against us, and Christ cannot intercede for us because the sin is so serious? Paul asked a similar question in verse 33. Who can bring a charge against God's elect? There are, there are some people who believe they are beyond salvation. They believe God cannot love them, or in other words, they only deserve God's wrath, not his forgiveness. I read a story once of a Holocaust survivor. She was one of a, uh, one of a twin. She had a twin sister. Uh, they were both in a concentration camp, and uh, sadly only she survived. This woman, uh, she's a Christian, and uh, when she goes to church one day, she sees a man. A man that she clear, clearly remembers to be one of her tormentors. A Nazi soldier, a man who even murdered her twin sister. And this, this ex-Nazi soldier, uh, even as a true Christian, he could think, this woman, a fellow believer, who goes to the same church as him, could bring a charge against him before God. But would God entertain such a charge? We may think that for such a person who has inflicted immeasurable agony, pain, and suffering upon so many lives, there is no salvation possible. But God can and does forgive people. Jesus suffered the punishment for all the elect. That woman, <clears throat> she was able to forgive this, this man, her torture, the murder of her twin sister, because she believed that the gospel is the power of God for salvation for all who believe. She realized God's forgiveness was not only for her, but also for him. As a result, she could forgive him as well. Although she confesses it's not perfect, she believes that forgiveness will be perfected in the world to come. God does change hearts, and he does heal wounds. But no person can bring a charge against us in God's court, because God is for us. What if Satan brought that charge? We, we see in Job that Satan can go to God and complain about people. He could say, how could you, a just God, allow such a man into heaven? Satan is the accuser of the saints, after all. Will it stick? Will this charge stick? Again, no. This man's penalty has been paid by Christ. He has been ransomed. He has been justified. God has given that verdict. If it is God who justifies, who can make a charge stick to his elect? No one. There is no person, there is no angel, there is no evil spirit, nor Satan himself. He might be raging out there to bring charges against you, but he is powerless to do so. There is no one who can bring a charge against us and condemn us 
because God is for us. Some of you might be thinking here, but what about me? What if, what if I am the problem? Sometime in the future, I may reject God because of various hardships. I may deny Christ because of intense persecution, when my life is threatened, or when I am tortured, or even worse, when my loved ones are tortured. After all, Jesus says in Matthew chapter 10, verse 33, Whoever denies me before men, I also will deny him before my Father, who is in heaven. I am not like the apostles and martyrs. I am not brave enough to give my life for Christ right now, let alone in the future. Maybe you're just uncertain of what you will do. You're not sure if you will be able to stand strong. Paul clarifies this question in the text too. Who, or even what, will separate us from the love of Christ? Will affliction, or turmoil, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? Paul suffered a lot in his life. He was shipwrecked, he was beaten, he was tortured, he was flogged, he was imprisoned, and he was ultimately put to the sword. He was killed. He checks everything that's in verse 35. Yet he never denied Christ. But you might say, that's the point, Shreddy. That does not encourage me. It scares me. It makes me feel not as good. Paul is great, but I'm not great. But God understands our fears. He understands our weaknesses. And so we find the story of Peter in the Gospels. Peter said to Jesus very boldly, Lord, with you I am ready to go both to prison and to death. Jesus replied to him, I say to you, Peter, the rooster will not, will not crow today until you have denied three times that you know me. And we all know whose words were true that night. Peter did deny Jesus in all three instances. The fact Yeah. I'm sorry, my apology. Yes, as as we as we just saw, Peter did deny Jesus in all three instances. But the fact that God chose Peter did not result in his boldness in those instances. What it did result in is grief. After, after his denial of Christ, he, he felt that grief of what he has done. He realized his failure to hold on to Christ. And it resulted in his return to Christ. I'll tell you this, every opportunity that you have to share Jesus with someone and you fail to do so, <clears throat> who are denying Christ. You can deny Christ as a commission sin or as an omission sin. You can actively say, I deny Christ, or you can just not talk about Jesus, be ashamed of him in front of other men. Uh, of course, one is more serious but we all deny Christ in our life at various moments when we are ashamed of our faith. But in all those moments, in those moments of weakness, there is the Spirit of God who strengthens us. 
And when we fail, or if we fail, there is forgiveness, and there is more grace in those failures. Nothing in this life, no hardship, no persecution, no temptation, no threat, no government, no amount of poverty, no amount of wealth, nothing will be able to take away our status before God, justified. That is what his verdict is for his children. So there is no one and there is nothing that can lead to the condemnation of God's elect. It's summed up in four very controversial words. Once saved, always saved. There are Christians who laugh at this idea, <clears throat> but they fundamentally misunderstand the word saved. And it is of utmost importance that we don't do. If we misunderstand it, this sermon and even this passage that Paul is uh, speaking here, it will go from encouraging to dangerous really quickly. Especially in this day and age when so many so-called Christians drift and fall away from the fall away from the faith left right and center so who is saved is it someone who has said the sinner's prayer is it someone who has been baptized is it someone who goes regularly to church is it someone who takes part in communion someone who takes part in charitable work someone who knows the bible front to back and back to front someone who goes to seminary someone who has a PhD in theology. None of these things mean you are saved. There's a question that was that that still is popular, was popularized by an atheist, the late Christopher Hitchens. In in many of his debates he he would ask the opposition, the Christian, what can a Christian do that an unbeliever cannot? I'll, I'll answer this question a little later, but for now, this question helps us understand, even though it comes from the mouth of an atheist, it helps us understand that good works can be performed just as well by a person who is not a Christian. You can change your life, turn it around, so can the unbeliever. You can forgive someone, so can they. You can be generous, honest, humble can add any 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 word there they can do it too even martyrdom is not exclusive to christianity it's not only the christians who who have been persecuted for their faith i i read of a buddhist monk in i believe it was in vietnam he just sat and set himself ablaze in protest of the persecution that buddhists were facing there there are religious zealots who kill other people along with themselves. We've got the suicide bombers. They believe they're advancing God's purposes. So it's, it's not in these actions. Anyone can clean the outside of a vessel. Anyone can appear clean on the outside. Just like the Pharisees, the ultra-religious people. But it is the inside of the vessel that matters. It is the heart that matters. So, if we look at our actions to understand what is salvation, there is only going to be confusion. There is no clarity in there. 
where we have to look is what is God doing? And so the person who is saved is the person whom God has elected. The person in whom God is changing things. The God, the person in whom God has produced a regenerate heart. That is the person who is saved. And so we can say with absolute confidence, once saved, always saved. If we do not believe that this is the case, but still say, I am sure I will go to heaven when I die, we're basing our confidence on our performance. There is either no certainty of our salvation, or there is certainty of our salvation, and that certainty is rooted in what God has done. Okay then, how do I know I am part of the elect? That is the million dollar question. From the text that we have before us today, I have two points to answer that. The first is this. The elect love God because they know God's love for them. So the first is the elect love God. That question from earlier, what can the Christian do that the unbeliever can't? It's a very simple answer. The Christian can love God, which is not possible for the unbeliever. This is the first and foremost command, the most important one, and there is not a person on earth who can even begin to obey it except for the elect of God. Just because someone is super religious doesn't mean they love God. Look at the Pharisees. In order for someone to have love for God, God needs to work in their heart. He needs to change that hardened heart into a soft one. Without a softened heart, it is impossible to love God. So here are the questions you need to ask yourself. Do you know how much you have to love God? With all my heart, all my soul, and all my mind. <clears throat> do you do that every day? No, I don't. Do you love God at all? I know how much he has loved me. While I was still a sinner, an enemy, he sent his son, and the son Jesus Christ, he gave his life for me on the cross and washed away my sins. I fail him so many times, but still the risen Christ intercedes for me. I know I do not give to God what he deserves, be it in the form of worship, in the form of adoration, in the form of gratitude. But I know that I do love him. And this is something you need to look into your heart to see. You need to be able to know if you can say, this is true about me. And if you can, you can rest assured. Because it is impossible for the unregenerate heart to find in itself to love God. For those who love God, there is nothing that can separate them from the love of God. So that is the first thing. The elect know God's love, and they can love God. The second is that the elect are more than conquerors. 
through Christ who loves them. What do we conquer? This is a verse often taken out of context. This text is not talking about conquering debts, diseases, exams, and, and other petty worldly problems. What we conquer are our trials and temptations. In times of trouble, we still come out standing strong in our faith, and our faith is even made stronger. It does not mean that our debt and disease disappears, but it does mean that our faith in Christ did not disappear despite the persistence of debts and diseases. Does this verse mean that we 100% succeed and never fail? Again, we'll, we'll go back to Peter's denial. When the moment came that people asked him the question, weren't you with Christ? He failed to stand strong for Christ. But he turned out the victor when he returned to Christ, and he was more than a victor when he laid down his life as a martyr. He overwhelmingly conquered his fears and temptations. The same is true with a person who is part of God's elect. They do struggle with sin, and they do fail several times. But if you watch their entire life, and not just those moments, you will see an overall pattern of victory over sin. How do they do it? By their own power? By striving very hard? Again, we'll, we'll look at this story uh, of Peter in Luke chapter 22. Just before Peter says, I will go up unto prison and death, Jesus says this to him. Simon, Simon, that is Peter, Satan has demanded to sift all of you like wheat. But I have prayed earnestly for you that your faith may not fail. The earnest prayer of Christ for our faith not to fail, that is the reason the elect will withstand any and all attacks. Every flaming arrow of the devil will count for nothing. So this assurance that we have of the love that God has for us and that he will help us become conquerors and at the end he will save us and bring us to eternal life. This assurance should not make us lazy. The fact that no one and nothing can separate us from the love of God should never lead us to complacency with sin. We shouldn't get comfortable sinning. The very evidence for our election is our increasing love for God and increasing victory over sin in our lives. The same Peter, he tells us in his second letter to make every effort to confirm our calling and election. It should be a constant striving to be conformed to the image of the Son of God. <clears throat> Assurance of salvation is our solid, immovable confidence, not in our works, but in, but in the finished work of Christ, in His intercessory work that is happening now, in the work of the Holy Spirit, who is constantly helping us, and in the unchangeable will of God the Father, 
for the glorification of the saints. The triune God, His work, the Trinitarian work, is the reason we have assurance of our salvation. And this truth should be something that we return to when we sin and fail, just as we were singing earlier. When we have the assurance that no one and nothing can separate us from the love of God, because God is for his people, then we too with Paul can say, I am convinced that nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. Whether it be death, the great enemy that removes us from the land of the living, or life with all of its temptations, trials, and failures. The holy angels cannot separate us from that love, and neither can the demons. Anything, be it a government or a situation or persecution or sickness, whether now in the present or in the future, cannot separate us. Nor can any power earthly or heavenly, nor can the heights, nor can the depths, nor any created thing contained within the entire expanse of the universe. None of these, no one, nothing can separate you from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. Let us pray. Loving Heavenly Father, thank you for this wonderful word of yours. Thank you that you love us with an everlasting love. And you are God from everlasting to everlasting. You have declared the end from the beginning, and your word is unchanging. Even though heaven and earth may pass, your word still stands. And you are not a man that you should lie, Lord. And you have spoken, you have declared that you will save your people. Help us find refuge in your words. Help us find refuge in the person of Christ, in the work of Christ our Savior, in the work of the Holy Spirit. Be our salvation be our light in a life that is filled with things that want to steal us away from you. Help us to trust in you. Help us to have victory over sin in our everyday life. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.